The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Jesus' journey was from his birthplace in Bethlehem back to the Sea of Galilee, and now he's headed towards Jerusalem. On this journey today, we look at a message we've entitled, A Poor Rich Man. If you look on the little bulletin that was handed to you, there are uh, many opportunities coming up. You can go to our website, additional opportunities that are there, and uh, just find a place to grow, find a place to serve in our body. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man came up, ran up to him and knelt before him. So he ran to him and knelt before him and uh, began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do? to inherit eternal life. If you write in your Bibles, circle the words, underline the words, what shall I do? How how can I get this? How can I get eternal life? How can I obtain it? How can I inherit it? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he said to Jesus, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you possess. Give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But at these words, his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Father, as we look at the word, we pray that you would teach us from this word. You have allowed us to worship in song and We've come to the table as a memory of what you've done for us. And now, as we look at the word, I pray that you would uh, instruct us and change us. In Christ's name, amen. Many of you were with us last week, and we looked at the topic of marriage. And this week, we look at the topic of money. Uh, When you preach systematically through the word of God, you can't dodge issues. You can't dodge subjects because they're always there. But I thought, isn't it interesting that money and marriage are wed together at this point in time? I mean, most of you have probably found out that money and marriage do go together. Have you found that out? They do go together. A 19-year-old young man who was very serious with his girlfriend came to his father and said, Dad, how much does it cost to get married? His father said, Son, I don't know. I'm still paying for it. Another guy lost his, he knew his credit card got stolen. His friend came to him and he said, man, have you reported your stolen credit card yet? He said, nope, whoever has it spends a lot less than my wife does. <laughs> Marriage and money. There, there is something in our psyche, something deep within us, something either brought on by the world, by the flesh, or by Satan himself that makes us believe that there's permanent joy in temporal things. There's something deep within us that makes us believe that there is permanent joy that can be found in temporal things. Maybe you've said it, or folks around you, you've certainly heard say it, but I'm only a lottery ticket away from happiness. Or I'll feel significant when I can move into and you name the neighborhood. Or or, I, I, I will feel a certain way when I can drive a certain type of car. And there's something deep within the soul of man that's brought on by Satan, the world, and the flesh, that makes us believe that there's permanent joy in temporal things. So we accumulate. We get more stuff. We get so much stuff, we have to rent a storage space to put more stuff into. We've got to have the latest stuff and the greatest stuff. We, we get addicted to shopping. 
we live to get more stuff. We have to have the latest electronic gadgets, the fastest computers, the newer model car, the bigger pickup, the latest fashions, and then we get it, and it brings us happiness for how long? That's the struggle in Mark chapter 10. There's a young man who comes to Christ, and the scriptures, interestingly enough, refer to him in three of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke lay out for us this young man's story. It must be significant to be recorded in three of the four Gospels. And when you piece those puzzle pieces together, he's young, he's rich, and he's a ruler. He's the rich, young ruler. And so when he comes to Christ, he is one who has it all. He has accolades, he has accumulations, and he has accomplishments. He's living a downtown Abbey existence. Do you know what I mean? How many of you are watching that series right now on PBS? Let me see your hands. What do the rest of you people do out there? <laughs> it's a great series on living as an aristocrat back in England at the turn of the last century. Interesting thing. And this young guy had it all. He had everything that money could buy. I mean, he had a condo on the Mediterranean where he lived. He had a three-chariot garage. He had imported wines and fine gourmet cooking. He had it all. Designer tunics were sent in to him from the surrounding countries, and he could have whatever he wanted. He lived his life like he flew first class. Everything in his life was there. He had everything that most of us would say, that's the way that I want to live. But he comes running to Jesus because in spite of having everything, he's empty. In spite of having everything, he is empty. He runs to Jesus with a question. And so the rich young ruler becomes really a poor rich man in this story. It's really about the curse of stuff or what we depend on in life, and it's a teaching on we should not have a tight grasp on the eternal, or on the temporal rather. He comes with all the right stuff. The right stuff, first of all, he came with the right motive. If you look at verse 17, he came with the right motive. He came seeking an answer. Nothing wrong with his motive. This man came seeking eternal life. When you look at his question, he wants to know about eternal life. That is a great question. In fact, you're sitting on an airplane, and somebody turns next to you. You've got your Bible out, having a little quiet time. And he says, I see you're a man or a woman of the Word. Can you tell me what I must do to have eternal life? I mean, we dream of that question. And so he comes really with the right motive. He wants to know about eternal life. Not only does he have the right motive, but he comes with to the right source. I mean, he came to the one person who could answer that question. If anybody could answer that question, Jesus could. I mean, he he came to the right source. He's got the right motive. He came to the right source. He comes with the right attitude. His attitude is, good teacher, would you tell me? I mean, he doesn't come telling Christ the answer that he has. He comes asking Christ for the answer that he would give. And by the way, it's a bold confession for him to state before all these folks that he needs to know about eternal life. He also comes with the right question. It's about life eternal. So you've got this young man. And he comes to Jesus, and it must have been awkward at that time. I mean, here he is, this upwardly mobile, highly successful young man who has achieved much, accomplished much, acquired much, and he comes before a carpenter's son, a country rube, and he throws himself down before him, and he kneels before him, and he says, good teacher, give me an answer. He's desperate. He's desperate. Kind of like the Dallas Cowboys in these days, just desperate. He needs an answer. 
For one who was so used to calling the shots, calling on this carpenter's son, had to be humbling. And if you look at his question, it's, what must I do? What must I do? The question about eternal life, and it's really the right question, but it's tainted by the culture that he lives in. Because really what he's asking about is, Jesus, give me the bottom line. It's almost a business transaction. Tell me, tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to accomplish. Tell me how much I need to work, and, and I will get it done. What are the requirements? What's the break-even point? And so Jesus turns to him in Matthew chapter 19, the parallel, the parallel gospel. It says, if you want to enter eternal life, obey the commandments. So a man with half a conscience would say, keep the commandments, keep the commandments. Why, that's impossible. Can't keep the commandments. But it's not, that's not this young man. When, when Jesus turns to him and says, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. He starts a checklist, a mental checklist in his mind. Don't murder. I haven't done that. Don't commit adultery. Hadn't done that. Uh, haven't stolen. Well, I can justify most everything. Honoring mom and dad. I'm taking good care of mom and dad. I'm providing for them. I've honored my mom and dad. And he turns to Jesus and he says in verse 20, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. I, I've done it all. What the law has asked me to do, what the commandments have asked me to do, I've kept them. I, I have no problem. I have no sin. I am good. Now, what's interesting is sandwiched in between here is something that Jesus told him in verse 18. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And it's almost like he's uh, scooting God off of the throne and saying, hey, got a little room for me up here? <laughs> I've done all these things since the time I was a youth. And that's the problem. The problem with this young man is he has false perspective. The problem with this young man is he has false perspective. He does not recognize or see himself as sinful. He does not recognize or see himself as sinful. Because you might ask the question, why is it when he comes to him, Jesus looks at him and says, do you know the commandments? Do you keep the commandments? I mean, if somebody came to you and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You'd whip the four spiritual laws out on him. You would whip out the Roman's road and say, let me tell you about this. But what Jesus does, he recognizes the problem here. The problem is this man doesn't recognize his need for a Savior. He wants to buy into eternal life some way and somehow. He's got the ability, he's got the means, and he's saying, what must I do to obtain it? And the problem is only sinners need a Savior, and this guy does not recognize he's a sinner. He says, from my youth, I've kept all the commands. There's nothing wrong with me. Now, most of us don't think that way. Most of us are pretty convinced that we're sinners. If you don't think you're a sinner, as I said last week, talking about marriage, give me about two minutes with your spouse, and we can settle that for sure. I mean, most of us, I mean, the purpose of the law, that's why Jesus brings out the law. He brings out the commands and he wants to point to this young man and point out to the young man, you have violated the law, you are a sinner, therefore you need of a savior. But he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. You see, the purpose of the law is to point out sin and to point us to a holy God. Law points out sin. You're headed down to Austin for lunch brunch. This is an earlier service. You get to go to brunch. The rest of us go to lunch later. You're headed to brunch down to Austin, and you, you get between Salado and Gerald, and you're gone 70 miles an hour, which is a speed limit. So you're really not breaking the law. 
So you're headed 70 miles an hour, and you're going to have brunch at Papa Do's today. And you're going to take me with you. <laughs> and you've got your pastor sitting in the front seat, and you're driving over here, and you're not going to break the law because you don't want to do that in front of me. And you're going 70 miles an hour, and you've got it on cruise control. And as we begin to approach Gerald, one of Gerald's finest is on the side of the road, and he's got his radar pointing your way. What are you going to do? How many, how many police officers we have? We've got a bunch of, how many of you in law enforcement out there? A bunch of you guys. A bunch of you guys and gals. What does everybody do when they see you pointing your radar at them? I don't care how fast they're going. They slow down, don't they? I mean, they slow down. There's a story in Colorado Springs newspaper. It's a story about how a number of people were speeding through a school zone. This was back in 1993. It's out of Colorado Springs newspaper. One of the moms got quite upset that the area was not being patrolled properly. So she went out one morning. She took a blow dryer out and pointed out her window every day. (laughs) What do you think every car did that drove by? It's just a lady with a blow dryer. You see, the law points out our sin, but this guy doesn't get it. It's the epitome of ignorance or arrogance or both. He says, since my youth, I have not broken the law. I've kept all these things. I haven't sinned. I mean, it's like when you've got a little kid and Christmas time comes around and you say, have you been naughty or have you been nice? How many kids say, I've been naughty all week, Santa? I mean, all year, just bring me switches and ashes and everything else. He says, I've kept all these things since the youth. He has a false perspective. He doesn't see himself as a sinner. Scriptures say in Romans 3.23, some have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that what it says? Nah. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Me, you, every one of us. The, the scriptures say in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Before you come to know Christ as Savior, you are helplessly, hopelessly lost. Period. Helplessly, hopelessly lost. Period. Period. It was Mark Twain who said, man was created a little lower than the angels and began a little lower ever since. I mean, that's the reality of who you are. We are all totally depraved. Total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be. It means we're as bad off as we can possibly be. We are separated from God. We are sinners by nature. Have you discovered that? We are sinners by nature. How many of you have infants or toddlers? Infants or toddlers. Let me see your hands. Or or grandkids or infants or toddlers. Did you bring, I have used this illustration 50 times up here. Did you ever bring your little one aside and say, let mommy and daddy teach you how to sin? I mean, how many of you ever did that? Let me teach you how to be selfish. Let me teach you how to throw a tantrum. We, we got a video this week from our son out in uh, California where they are living, and uh, they've got uh, a son who's almost two years old. Case, his name is Case. He's on the floor. I mean, he is kicking and screaming out loud, and, and, and I mean, he's just throwing a tantrum on the floor. And so Daniel calls after we see the video. I said, Daniel, what happened? Well, we wanted to give him, I can't remember what, we were going to give him this to eat, but he wanted this to eat. He got so mad, he just threw himself on the floor, flopped down, started screaming and hollering. So, Daniel, did he ever see y'all do that? I mean, do you throw yourself on the floor when you get mad, scream and holler and kick and, well, no, Dad, I'm not. where do you think he got that from? See, my one-and-a-half-year-old grandson is a little sinner. 
How many grandparents admit that? I'm telling you, he is. He's an adorable little sinner. I mean, nobody taught him. He never saw anybody throw themselves on the floor and kick and scream. Nobody does that in his house. We can walk to the nursery right now. There can be 50 toys in that nursery right now. And those kids are going to squabble over that one toy. I mean, nobody teaches kids. Here's a toddler's motto and toddler's creed for those of you with toddlers. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you, by the way, where do they get the word mine from? That's one of the first words they learn. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what. If it looks just like mine, it is mine. How many of you have toddlers that represent that? I mean, that's life for them, isn't it? I mean, that's just life for them. It's mine, and don't take it away from me. And if you do, I'm going to throw myself on the floor, I'm going to kick and scream. Where did they learn that from? See, Romans 3, by nature, we're all sinners, every one of us. This guy didn't get it. The rich young ruler said, hey, I've kept it all from the time I was young. There's nothing wrong with me. C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. This young man did not get it. He had false perspective. Let me ask you a question this morning. When did you realize that you were hopelessly, helplessly lost? When did you realize that? See, we do interviews before baptisms, and sometimes the testimony goes like this. I've always believed in God, and I've always gone to church. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, Always believing in God and always going to church will get you a quick ticket to hell. Unless you trusted Christ as your Savior. Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying there are a lot of religious people who are lost people. That's what I'm saying. One of my greatest fears for people that attend TBC on a regular basis is that you will somehow feel like you're grafted into the body of Christ without ever trusting the Savior. And it doesn't happen that way. If your testimony is, I've always believed in God, I've always trusted in God, I've always known God, my question for you is, when is the day that you realize you are helplessly, hopelessly lost and needed to trust Christ as your Savior? Not when you joined the church, not when you were baptized. Well, Pastor Greg was baptized when I was uh, two weeks old. Great for your mom and dad. That was their decision, not yours. You were not a two-week-year-old who said, baptize me, baptize me. When did you discover you're hopelessly, helplessly lost in need of a Savior and placed your faith in Him? You see, when you recognize you're a sinner, then you know you need a Savior. By the way, for those of you with little kids, that was kind of the rule of thumb in our house and the way we teach young parents. We get asked the question all the time, how will I know when my kiddo is old enough to be saved? When they recognize that they're sinners, then they're old enough to know they need a Savior. Will they fully understand all the deep theological implications of justification and redemption? No, they won't. But the gospel is a simple proposition. A sinner needs a Savior. That Savior is Jesus who gave his life on our behalf. A second problem, he had wrong values. He had a false perspective. He didn't see himself as lost. He had wrong values. He was clinging to temporal things. He was clinging to temporal things. Without arguing the man's claim to goodness, Jesus gives him one command, only one more command. He said, he doesn't say, okay, you've kept all these things, let me give you more. Jesus just says, well, here's one thing about you. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Underline that in your Bible. 
Jesus is not saying, I want to condemn you to hell. Jesus had a love for this man. By the way, that's the same attitude we're supposed to have to, uh, with unbelievers. We are to love the unbeliever. Jesus was a friend for sinners. I find many Christians in our day and age loathe the unbeliever. They hate the unbeliever. They, they, they put distance between themselves and the unbeliever. And Jesus was a friend of sinners. You'd be like, Jesus, you're going to love the unbeliever. So don't, don't come to my office and expect sympathy when you show up and say, I'm the only believer in my business or the only believer in my office or the only believer in my family. You know what I'm going to tell you, what I'm going to tell you. God has graced you with a mission field when nobody else has. That's amazing. Go represent him well. And so Jesus looks at him, he loves him, and he says to him, one thing you need to do, go sell everything you own and give it away. Wow. Wow. David Platt wrote a book called Radical. How many of you have read Radical sometime in the past couple of years? Radical is a great read. If you haven't read it, pick it up. To call to radical living. In his book Radical, he says, referring to the rich young ruler, to this section of God's word, he said there are two interpretational mistakes that Bible teachers often make. One is we look at this and say this is what God has commanded for everybody. And he doesn't. If you look at the scripture, you search the scripture, he didn't tell everybody to go sell everything that they make. He does say everything we own should come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 14. Everything you have belongs to the Lord. The, the other mistake, so the one mistake is applying to everyone. The other mistake is applying it to no one. Because you see, for some of us, we have the same idol this young man has. Our money and our stuff. Our money and our stuff. And he looks at him and says, if you want to follow me, the only way you're going to do it is to get rid of your idol. And your idol is a stuff. The young man's response, look at the next verse. His face fell. He was grieved at these words. You see, the idol of his life had been exposed where he placed his security, where he placed his trust. His heart was ripped wide open. I'm glad money does not become an idol for us today, aren't you? I'm glad we don't find our security in our stuff. You know, on April 3rd, when I was diagnosed with this disease, I would have looked at you and told you, you know, money's really not an issue in my life. Money was an issue in my life. I would have gone to Boca Raton, Florida about 20 years ago. There's a church that came here, listened to Bev, listened to me preach, invited Bev and I out. We went, we Canada, they offered me a job, and uh, it was an obscene amount of money in that day and age. It was a large church. If I, if I was in this for money, I'd be in Boca Raton. Or when I finished seminary, I was offered two jobs not related to ministry. One was in the apartment business, the other was in the security business. The security business was sold recently for $4.3 million. I would have been a half owner of that. Apartment business, I, I don't know, that went away a long time ago. So I would have told you money does not drive me, that I don't find a whole lot of security in money, it doesn't tempt me, it doesn't motivate me, it's not something. But in April of this year, or April of last year, this year, what year are we in? Last year. You know, my world was rocked. And I, I, am a, I am a budgeter. I've been frugal. We have not invested a lot in, in this world's goods. I mean, we, we live a very comfortable lifestyle. You provide that for us. But stuff didn't drive me. Stuff didn't drive me. But all of a sudden, I heard words like, uh, insurance isn't going to pay for this. 
then you're going to get treated. And if you get hospitalized, it's not going to pay for it. And uh, I didn't have a mortgage. We, we had been frugal with everything God had given or wise with everything God had given us. And so we had zero debt, zero debt of any kind. We just built a new house to accommodate my parents. We moved in, took on a mortgage well within our budget. But in those of you that know me well who were part of my life at that time, man, I was struggling. And my struggle was with stuff. It's embarrassing to say. It was like, really? Really? After 40 years of walking with Christ... You're going to be that concerned about stuff. You're going to be that concerned about your retirement account. You're going to be that concerned about what could happen and might happen. And and for those of you who were in that tight circle with us in those days, yeah, I struggled more with stuff than I did with cancer. That's pathetic. And I began to realize God was doing a work in my heart that needed to happen. And I would have told you stuff didn't matter to me. But oh my gosh. I found so much security, and it's not like I've got $20 million in the bank or anything, but I found so much security in the way we were headed and what was happening. That finally there came a day when I was on my knees before God, like the rich young ruler, and I said, God, in the past I think I've said everything is yours, but maybe I didn't mean it. But God, I want you to know I'm here with open hands. And everything, everything is yours. Period. Take this burden from me. And honestly, it's embarrassing to be up here and confess that. But that was a reality of my life. And I realized that I found security in the Savior, but also security in stuff. And now I pray that that's been ripped away. Because stuff, it ain't going anywhere with us. You've heard me say a hundred times, you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Doesn't happen. And some of us, quite honestly, if you were in the position I was in, you'd be panicked too. Yeah, we got a lot of wealthy people in this body. We get a lot of people that try and make it paycheck to paycheck, but we've got a lot of people that have accumulated a lot. What would happen to you if that stuff was taken away from you? Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Idols, you want to read a good book on idolatry, there it is. And I've read it twice. It said, an idol is anything that consumes your passion, consumes your thoughts, consumes your heart. What consumes you? Well, the rich young ruler, sadly enough, God worked in my heart, but he didn't work in this young man's heart. He went away, never to come back. It didn't happen. You know, and let me make a quick application here. Most of us will not be called to sell everything off and give to the poor. But most of us struggle with just giving a small portion of what we have to God's kingdom. We buy a bigger house, we give less money. We send our kids to school, we give less money. There's a special vacation coming up, we give less money. And TBC's blessed. We met our budget for the year by the end of November. And I shared with you, we're able to transfer a million dollars from general fund to building fund. So this isn't about TBC needing money. It's about your heart and the living God. 
What does your checkbook say about your heart? What does your checkbook say about your heart? Because if you are not generous with God, chances are you're not generous at all. He who has no money is poor. He who has nothing but money is even poorer. The problem is not that we've found we've tried faith and found it wanting, but we've tried mammon and found it addictive. Generosity is the best antidote to materialism. Giving breaks the hole that possessions have on our lives. Here's what we can do this morning. I want you to pick your checkbooks, raise them out. I want you to look in the register, and I want you to read how much money you've given to God in his kingdom. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but if we could, what would your checkbook say about your heart? Missionaries you don't support that you could? Ministries that you are taught from and don't give to? What's your checkbook say about your heart? Well, the rich young ruler is very clear. He wasn't going to do anything about it. And Jesus gives a warning, the hindrance of wealth. He, he looks at him in verse 23. He, Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. He says, If you are wealthy, it's difficult to go to the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words. And Jesus said, Show them how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's very clear. If, you've, if you're a rich man, it's going to be hard for you to get to God's kingdom. How many of you would consider yourselves rich? Really, how many consider yourselves rich? Okay, let me give you the biblical definition of wealth. You ready? The biblical definition of wealth, and I, I didn't get the reference. I'll give them to you next week. I'll print them out. Uh, Don Snookian taught this to us. I've gone back and looked it up just this past week. It's in Leviticus. If you had food for the day at the start of the day and a change of clothes, by biblical definition, you're a rich man. Jesus is talking to people. He says, if you're rich, if you've got food for the day at the start, how many of you had food for the day at the start of today? How many of you have a change of clothes? Every one of you. I saw you last week, too. You changed clothes, every one of you. And if you don't have food for the day, start of the day, show up any Sunday. There are donuts back over there. We'll feed you. We'll do that. I am serious. So by definition, a rich man is not the person who makes the Forbes 500 list. A rich man is the person who has food for the day, start of the day, and a change of clothes. If you have that, you are by definition a rich man according to the biblical standards, and it's harder for you to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle because you become prideful like I had become, or you become self-sufficient like I had become, and all of a sudden you realize things are not right in the way they should be. And Jesus issues a warning to those of us who are wealthy, and he says, your wealth will hinder you from salvation, from entering the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 26, and who can be saved? I mean, they come to Christ, they're astonished, and they say to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. The disciples looked at Jesus, they scratched their head and said, if that's the case, then none of us have a chance to be saved. And he says, you're right, you don't. There's nothing you can do. He says, with man, it's impossible. He doesn't say it's improbable. He doesn't say it's unlikely. He doesn't say it's going to be tough. He says it's impossible. No chance, no way, no loopholes, no hope. It is impossible. Just like it's impossible to swim the Pacific or the Atlantic, it's impossible for you yourself to get to heaven. Somebody had to do it for you that somebody is a Savior, Jesus. And when you place your trust in him, 
You're no longer the rich man who could not inherit eternal life. It's not about a system. It's about a savior. It's not about a resume. It's about a redeemer. It's, it's, the issue is not money. The issue is self-sufficiency. When we see ourselves as self-sufficient, we don't need a savior. Mark it down, writes, Max Licato writes, God does not save us because of what we've done. Only a puny God could be bought with our tithes. Only an egotistical God would be impressed with our pain. Only a temperamental God would be satisfied with our sacrifices. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidder. Only a great God does for his children what they cannot do for themselves. And so Peter chimes in. And you, you got to love Peter at this point. And Peter says, uh, Lord, we left everything and we followed after you. You see, in contrast to the rich young ruler who wouldn't, Peter said, we did. And Jesus says to him, uh, you will indeed be rewarded in eternal life. Many who are first will become last and the last will become first. They're eternal rewards for temporal sacrifices. When you sacrifice temporal things of this world, eternal rewards will be given to you. Maybe you guys recognize the five people behind me. They went to the Aka Indians to minister to them. They were all martyred as young men in their 20s. Every one of them. Lives taken. Jim Elliott had written in his journal prior to going to the Aka Indians. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. Two applications today. Number one. When did you realize you were hopelessly, helplessly lost and trusted Christ as your Savior? Some of you need to do that this morning. Secondly, are you generous? Are you generous? Some of you have been given the same amount to God's work for the last 10 years. You're not generous. You're not generous. You're given a meager amount based upon the ways that God has given you. Jesus gave everything he could possibly give. How could we not give back to him? And it doesn't need to be to TBC, but it needs to be to the work that God is doing for his kingdom and for his glory. Tony Shea is an interesting man. Tony Shea is a man who, at age 26, sold his company LinkedIn to Microsoft for $325 million. He later would sell Zappos, the other company he started, for about a billion dollars to Amazon. In his mid-30s, he was on the Forbes list, list over $1.5 billion of net worth. After he made the initial sale at age 26, I read his book called Delivering Happiness. I don't know if any of you read it. It's an interesting read. It's his autobiography, and it also tells you about Zappos and LinkedIn. He says, when we were in college, they had a bet. There were uh, five of them had a bet and who would become the first to make a million dollars and whoever did would have to take the other guys on a cruise. And he said, it was a win-win proposition to me. Either I had enough money to take everybody on a cruise or I would be given a free trip. He became the one to do it because at age 26, he sold his company for 325 million bucks. So he took a cruise, nicest cruise ship that sails on the oceans and took 15 of his closest friends and paid for everybody to come, chartered a private jet from the West Coast down to Puerto Rico so they could catch the cruise ship that they were going to take. He says it was amazing. Nightclubs, 10 bars, swimming pools, five all-you-can-eat restaurants. We upgraded to the nicer restaurants. It was like a mini college reunion without all the boring parts that college had. 
We would dance the night away, drink the night away. The final night at 1 a.m., the DJ announced it was last call, so we all headed to the bar because the club would be uh, shutting down soon. I watched as all my friends were enjoying themselves. And I sat there after a vodka shot. And I looked at my friends, and I began to think, now what? I'm 26 years old. I've got more money than I can spend the rest of my life. Now what? Where do I find happiness? Where do I really find success? Where do I really find success? What do I work towards now? Then he writes, I still don't have those answers. So I clinked glasses with my financial advisor, Sanjay, took another shot, figuring out sometime in the future I'd figure it all out. The rich young ruler of today. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You've got a generous Savior. How could you not be generous? You've got a Savior who gave his life for you. Why don't you trust him? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the provision of eternal life. Father, I fear that many of us in this room are like the rich young ruler. Some have not come to faith in you yet because we have idols that stand in the way. We get stuff. Lord, I, I know the scriptures teach it's not money, it's a love of money that's the root of all evil, but some of us love it way too much. We love all the accoutrements that come with it. And when we're threatened, we're threatened to lose it, we struggle. If you're here today and aren't sure of Christ as your Savior, I invite you right now to make sure of that. The scriptures also say, Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Treasure the things of God. Be generous with the things of God. Be generous towards others. And your heart will follow. So, Father, we give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory on this day. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.